James, why have we not sworn on this podcast? Because uh, kids listen to it. Because the audience? Yeah. Yeah? Why can't they hear swearing? Um, well, personally, I think they should. They should. But why have we not sworn? Why have you not sworn, if that's what you believe? Because <sighs> I'm scared of teachers. So you have almost self-censored yourself. That's true. We censor our speech every day, don't we? Depending on who we're with, who we're around. You probably speak quite different to me than you do around your friends. My friend, the one IQ crew. The one IQ crew, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wagwan and... <laughs> what you're saying. What you're saying. All yeah. of that. High-fiving. So our topic for today in the final episode of mm. Repeat Until Funny. This is the big one. This is the big one. <laughs> We've got, I'd like to say I'd put in more effort to this one than any of the others, but... Really? No. <laughs> I'd probably put less effort in. <laughs> But this episode is going to be on censorship. Mm-hmm. What do you understand by the term censorship? I've given you a sort of example of it, how we do it in our own lives. But do you think that's a fair definition of what censorship is, by and large? Censorship. The way I see censorship is black bar yeah. with the word censor written on that black bar in white ink. So, like, you've got a document. Yeah. And they've blacked out certain bits mm. of it, and they've censored it. Yeah. Well, when I think of, um, and this is very clever of me, 1984, mm-hmm. it's censorship. So what happens in 1984? It's censorship. Um, well, he works at the, it, the Bureau of Information. Speech or something, isn't it? Bureau like, of Speech. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. It's, it's like you said in the last episode, the best sounding thing is the worst thing. It's like the freedom of speech within <laughs> party lines. The best way to achieve yeah. full freedom. Full, yeah. yeah. And he like, he has to read all the newspapers and take out the bits that are against the, the party. Okay, so I'm going to give you a definition. Not to say that your definition wasn't Go on. perfect. Yeah. But I'm going to give you a definition of censorship by the English moral philosopher Bernard Williams. Mm-hmm. Who you're probably quite influenced by in your I'm a big fan, of, big fan of Bernard. He's actually Bernard. Oh, um, correction, yeah. yeah. And it's actually a woman. Good. Call back to that. <laughs> he said, and it is a he, mm. he said, in its broadest sense, the term censorship is applied to any kind of suppression or regulation by government or other authority of the writing or other means of expression based on its content. There's one word I could use to describe that. It's succinct. <laughs> he's really got to the nub of it. Yeah. I, let's try and censor some of the words he's used yeah. and get to the key point. I think there, the key point is, first of all, it's suppressing or regulating something. Yeah. So hiding it somewhere or just not letting it be said mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. The second part is the idea of authority versus a means of expression. Yeah. Censorship requires power. Mm-hmm. Only a person with power can censor something. You can't censor something without that power. Would you agree? Yep. So even when it comes to our own personal speech, like we said, we haven't sworn, we can do that because we have power over our own speech. Oh, yeah, yeah. The same way that your example of 1984, the party has power over what is going to be disseminated through newspapers and books and ideas like that. Yes. The most drastic method of censorship and control is prior restraint which is different to what we have been doing by not swearing because it's essentially a work being inspected before it's published and then being stopped almost before nipped in the bud kind yeah. of stuff so if, if let's say for example you were saying any filler words erinoms 
you yeah. edit them out. So let's say, for example, that this podcast wasn't uh, tightly <laughs> organised and erudite... Well-oiled machine. Well-oiled machine. <laughs> and that I actually quite often went, uh, and uh, so, and interestingly... Yeah. Or, or try to think of like a catchy little phrase yeah. and spend about two minutes doing it. And also it works your way as well. Yeah, sometimes that's I've, true. I've, but let's say that this podcast wasn't, or was more like that, was full of these filler words. Mm. If I was to censor it, then I would compact it and change it and edit yeah. it. But is that really censorship? Probably not, because then Probably you would argue that. That, that an author reading through his work mm. and making changes and additions and retractions mm. is censorship. I think the key to censorship must be another power is having an impact upon you. Yeah. An authority figure is... Imp- so if the big wigs at my school <laughs> said, this podcast's too dangerous. You can't do this. You can't do that episode on censorship. We can have a revolt if this goes out. Exactly. These Which, sort of ideas. You, you know, you, you appealed... Your, your listeners range up to 15 kids. <laughs> that could uh, derail the whole school. Yeah. And if they were to then impose a ban on it or say you can't do that, that would be prior restraint yeah. censorship. Until 1968... Theatre performances in England were controlled in this way. Okay. So a court official, the Lord Chamberlain, monitored every script before production Mm. up until 1968. Mm. And they would demand changes if they thought it was a disrespect to the monarchy or having an impact upon morality. Mm. And if you didn't make those changes, you couldn't perform the play. Uh, uh. And they would visit the performances to check that they're being carried out. This is an example of prior restraint. But of course, it's more famous in like absolutist regimes. Mm. So last week we talked about Soviet Union, also places like uh, Nazi Germany, of course. Joseph Goebbels, famously the minister of propaganda, said, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes truth. It's not a lie if you believe it. It's not a lie if you believe it. And that's why this is the best yeah. podcast <laughs> ever. Ever. And it's got lots of listeners. It's, it's, I, I mean, I was staggered by the amount of listeners. Lots of listeners. Got. It's yeah. got lots of listeners. This podcast has got lots of listeners. But uh, that's, that's how I think of um, censorship. I usually think of censorship of art. Mm-hmm. I think of censorship. So it, I feel like that's not like the most important one. In what way? Well, like um, uh, one that leaps to mind is... Um, what was it? The during the Red Scare in America, and the Crucible. The Crucible. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they they were censoring things that were anti. Were they? Can I say that? You got a weird smile on your face. I've got a weird smile because I'm opening my bottle. Oh. To try <laughs> no, they were they were censoring things that were anti-democracy and pro-communist, weren't they? Yeah, it was in in the midst of McCarthyism, mm. so the Red Scare. Yeah. Or the second. Uh, coming of the Red Scare. And I just think that art can reach more people than the huge newspapers mm. and, like, the, the facts and figures. Censorship is, and that was one example, and I think it feeds into this example that censorship is particularly prevalent in war. Mm. War censorship has to be top because you need to have a unified country. You need to have a unified nation. Mm-hmm. So during World War Two. The British government and the American government, once they got involved... Mm, a bit late. A bit late, better late than never. Come on, lads. Come on. Once they got involved, 
they suppressed their their newspapers and mm-hmm. they took control over what was being disseminated and what was being said. Mm-hmm. And calling back all the way to my first podcast that I did alone on wow. um, the Spanish flu, looked yep. at the Spanish flu, the UK government su- suppressed all dissemination of news about the Spanish flu because they thought it would impact upon morale. They yeah. censored that story. The emphasis now, though, has shifted from prior restraint, which is like, we're not going to let that go out, mm-hmm. to labelling. Mm-hmm. What do you think labelling could mean as a form of censorship? Uh, is it like putting a little tagline on something? Like, let's say you had a plinth. Mm-hmm. You put another plinth next to it, saying... Like a statue. Yeah. That, I wasn't going to use this that. This is good. We're coming back to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's linking. But yeah, that, that's labelling, isn't it? Also things like classifying films so saying this is a 12 this is a 15 oh, this right. is an 18 yeah, yeah. although it's not censorship per se it's a form of censorship mm. it's moving it and it's putting it in a place so that some people can't watch it mm. the same with music music funnily enough isn't certificated it doesn't have like if you're listening to Eminem that's not an 18 no. whereas yeah. if you listen to Taylor Swift that's a U yeah. it just says what does it sound in- uh, explicit yeah, parental. What does it say? I parental thought... discretion is advised. Oh, explicit right. content. Yeah, that was Hillary Clinton who did that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Which is why Eminem does that. Um, the line about Hillary Clinton. <sighs> Hillary Tr- Clinton tried to call me a pervert. Uh, I ripped her fucking tonsils out and fed her sherbet. Because that's from the time where they were trying to introduce parental. Oh right. Oh, that's. I never knew that. Okay, that's our sort of appetizer <laughs> for the censorship issue and i think it's really important that we we root that in what's going on in today's society when we've had things like episodes of 40 towers being removed from streaming services for mm-hmm. some essentially for some words and phrases used by a particular character in that a lot of episodes of the simpsons now off the air because of apu yeah. and miscasting someone because they're not the same race as the character they're playing mm-hmm. um always sunny in philadelphia the episode yeah. regardless of their sort I and mean, this is a whole different debate this so we're not going to get into that, that the validity of that but we are seeing a rise in censorship mm-hmm. to a certain extent and definitely with labeling because when these episodes haven't been removed they now come with a label saying this episode might have language that you may find offensive or is antiquated and trigger warnings and things like that. I mean, I just can't wait till these episodes get removed. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be a good day. (laughs) Or come with a trigger warning. Or come with a trigger warning. I think all of our episodes come with a trigger warning. Includes lots of... A couple of silverbacks. (laughs) A couple of silverbacks in the the same room. You're going to get some trigger warning. You're going to get some trigger warning. We are, though, going to look... Essentially, at censorship, and what I'm really interested in is your opinions on this mm-hmm. and your viewpoint on would you censor this? Do you think this is right or this is wrong? And essentially... Really put me in the firing line. <laughs> in the firing line. But essentially, censorship and freedom of speech are intertwined, aren't they? They work yeah. together. Yeah. Like, the limits of freedom of speech are where censorship and the law come in. So yeah. those two issues are going to intersect yes. somewhat. One of the most famous and earliest examples of censorship is Socrates. Oh. Who is Socrates? He is a... Not a footballer. Um, Socrates was a Greek scientist slash philosopher, wasn't he? Philosopher, I would say. I think yeah. science at that time was very much in its infancy. Yeah. Philosophy, of course, being the study of knowledge, yeah. in essence. He was alive between 469 and 399 BC. 
It's a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, an old man. Yeah. 400 years before Christ. Before Christ. <laughs> if uh, he exists. If he exists. Censor that. Censor that out. And Socrates was known to be a questioner of everything. Mm-hmm. So he would go around basically just questioning everything, everyone, all the time. And one of his most famous sayings, and all the sayings of Socrates are pretty contestable because he never actually wrote anything down. Okay. It was all recorded by one of his students, Plato. Oh, right, yeah. Who wrote it all out. But he was... a little dog that followed Mickey around. Pluto? Pluto, yeah. <laughs> he said, only one thing I know, and that is that I know nothing. Yep. Which has often been repurposed as, the more you know, the more you know you, you don't, don't know. Yeah. So you know... Quite a bit, actually. Quite a bit, yeah. yeah. yeah quite a <laughs> He, he also said, another good quote, life contains but two tragedies. One is not to get your heart's desire. The other is to get it. I hate that. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> so just to, to underpin this, that he's a questioner of everything. He was told, so he went to the Oracle at Delphi. Have yeah, you heard of that? I've heard of that. See, I didn't know what that, I've always heard of the Oracle at Delphi. Ah. What actually is it? It's usually like a young woman mm. um, kept in like... I don't know how to... It, it, I think of it like the Chattery in Brighton. Yeah. You know, that little thing. Yeah. But it's like, like a top of a temple. A, yeah. But like it's on like a mountain or something and all these priests and you ask it questions and it tells you the future. Her. Yeah. Not it. It. Sorry. Well, uh, we don't... They. 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 We she ask them... Them. Questions. I did a bit of research. Essentially, you're right. It's a woman. She's... In the city of Delphi, in a kind of like temple, like we said, supposed to have a connection with the gods. Mm-hmm. Interesting story. Interesting. Love that. Supposed to be a virgin. Yeah. So that was the idea. So they got obviously young girls in as virgins to be the Oracle of Delphi, but they were getting abused or like sexually abused by everyone who came to visit it. Wow, wow. So yeah. they then put in 40 and 50 year old virgins instead. Oh. <laughs> Clever. <laughs> so the Oracle at Delphi. That's not funny. <laughs> can't, can't laugh. Sense that out. Sense that out. The Oracle at Delphi, this fifty-year-old hag, hag. <laughs> who Socrates went to see, declared that he was the wisest man in Athens. Mm. So they said, Socrates, you're the wisest man in Athens, and he said, No, I'm not. Oh, wow. He said, I'm not the wisest man in Athens, mm. and he went around sort of to all the really intelligent people in Athens, sort of feeding into the idea that the only thing I know is that I know nothing. And he's saying, they, all these people are more intelligent than me. And he started talking to them, but he realised that he was actually smarter than all of them. Yeah. He said that although he knew nothing, he, unlike these other people that were considered to be smart, was aware of his own ing- ignorance. Ah, right. So he actually was the smartest. <laughs> I was going to say, it was like a bit of a, from his own quote previously, mm. it was a bit like, no, I'm one of the most stupid man in Athens. But that makes me, the, that most makes in- me the, the smartest. Most inten- the fact that I know that I'm the stupidest makes me the most intelligent. Yeah. He had a triple filter test, which was, and again, we're on a bit of a tangent because Socrates yeah. is quite interesting. We're going to get, but all these things are why he gets censored and what happens to him eventually Mm. one of the things he used to do and this is a story told by plato is when he was visited by an acquaintance of his who wanted to tell him some sort of juicy gossip yeah this is what happened the man would ask if socrates wanted to know the story so Mm. you do that i'll be socrates you say i've got some juicy gossip 
Uh, I've got some juicy gossip right here. Juicy gossip, so sewing circle. Sewing circle stuff. Listen, now, when you hear well, what Barbara's been up to. Now, this is what he said. The first filter, so it's a triple filter. Before the man spoke, he asked, have you made absolutely sure that what you're about to say is true? No. No, so that's truth. So the man in this story shakes his head and he says, no, I actually just heard about it. Mm-hmm. So just saying now. No, I've actually just heard Socrates about it. cuts him off. <laughs> you don't know for certain that it's true. Is what you want to say something good or kind? So you don't know. It. So the first test is truth. Mm-hmm. Second test is it good or kind what you're about to say about Barbara? Uh, Just honestly, think about what the right answer is. No. Uh, so you are saying no. Actually, the opposite. It's the opposite. It's not nice at all. It's pretty, yeah, you know, pretty salacious. Socrates lifted his hand to stop the man speaking. <laughs> he says, so you are not certain that what you want to say is true and it isn't good or kind. One filter still remains, though, and you may still tell me this. And that is usefulness or necessity. Is this information useful or necessary to me? Uh, yes. You're supposed to say no. What? Why? So the, 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 he's just being contrary. He is. So the man supposedly replies, no, not really. It's not interesting or useful to you. Uh-huh. And Socrates says, well, then, if what you want to say is neither true, nor good, nor kind, nor useful or necessary, please don't say anything at all. <laughs> now, I imagine yeah. you want to execute Socrates. At this yes. Point. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty annoyed at the guy. In 399 BC, he was indicted for failing to honour the Athenian gods and mm. corrupting the young. Mm-hmm. Essentially through this line of questioning and this persistent... He's a bit of a maverick. He's a bit of a maverick. He yeah. ruffles feathers. <laughs> goes against the grain. He goes against the grain. <laughs> now, the, the whole trial was a bit of a joke and there were lots of political reasons for it and mm. it wasn't really fair in any way. In the court, they have this sort of court affair, this trial, where mm. Socrates sort of mounts a defence of himself... But you can imagine what kind of defence. Oh, yeah. And they ask him a question. He goes, is it true or necessary? All right. I'd throw it back at him. <laughs> like, I've got a defence. Is it true or necessary? <laughs> How about that? And everyone goes, ooh. ooh. But he allegedly, during this court case, uttered the now famous phrase, the unexamined life is not worth living. What does that mean? Essentially, it's no good to just blow through life like a carrier bag down the street mm. you have to view your life in context and be constantly uh, aware and reflective of who you are and what you're doing self-reflective not yeah other people reviewing your life you, yeah you have to be aware what other people think but you need to examine your life as well okay it needs to be examined yeah. well, i thought you were saying like you're not you haven't really lived until you've been in court no against you not examined as in like cross-examined yeah but, and this was later appropriated by John Stuart Mill, who we're going to look at in a moment, mm-hmm. who said it is better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Yes. The notion that it's better to be unhappy but be aware of the full realities mm. than to be happy but ignorant. But, you know, it's better to be alive above all. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And he is put to be executed, Socrates. Mm-hmm. It's delayed during for it was delayed for thirty days due to a religious festival, mm-hmm. and all Socrates' mates tried to convince him to escape from Athens, which he could have done mm-hmm. quite easily, but Socrates refuses. He says no, 
I, I don't, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to run away from this. So she's come to get you. Thank you. <laughs> what you're about to say, true. You guaranteed it's true. Socrates, I want to help you. I've heard that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Is it true? <laughs> Plato recounts that on his last day, Socrates appeared both happy in manner and words, as he died nobly without fear. He famously drank a cup of brewed hemlock, which is poison. Yeah which his executioner handed him, walked around until his legs grew numb and then lay down, surrounded by his friends and waited for the poison to reach his heart. And he died. So Socrates was censored for his opinions and he faced the ultimate consequence for his opinions, which was death. Mm. Do you think that was good censorship or bad censorship? Bad. Why? Why should people not be put to death for expressing opinions that are contrary to... Well, because you, you need to know the other side to refine, either refine mm. your own opinions or sort of bring in new opinions. Yes. And if, if you destroy everything that's contrary to what you think, you're, oh, you're never going to grow. You're going to stagnate. Excellent. And you've anticipated some of John Stuart Mill's arguments. Which oh, we're, I know. We're going to come to. That's not a surprise. <laughs> Why would the government... And the power structure want to censor someone like Socrates. That's good. Because you can't really do anything. Well, I suppose it makes them question... It makes the people question what they're saying. Mm. What the government's telling you to do. Let's come forward in time. What particularly big institutions in... Let's focus on Europe in the 14th, 15th century would be particularly focused on not wanting to have contrary opinions said about them. Religion. Yeah. Yeah. Why would religion be so concerned about people saying things about them? Uh, why would religion be so concerned? Because uh, they had so much power? Because they had, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a power structure. And yeah. religion, when you put, put it out on the table, is supposedly infallible. Mm-hmm. That's the, the, the idea of the book and the holy book is that this is infallible, this is the word of God. So to criticise that word of God, no matter how small, damages the foundations of which it is based. Mm. Why, though, in the mid-15th century, is there going to be more criticism of religion out there? There's an invention that causes there to be a massive extension of these ideas that criticise religion. Uh, When was it? Mid-15th century. Science? Uh, science invented in the think, Yeah, but even if science was invented, so I'm a, I'm a famous scientist, I've made a really big discovery that the Earth isn't flat. Mm. And it, Controversial. And it, it doesn't... And not everything revolves around the Earth and the Earth is not the centre of the universe. Uh-huh. How do I disseminate that information to people? A book. A book. And this is it. Mid-15th century, you see Gutenberg and the invention of the printing press. Oh, okay. Before this point, in order to get an idea out, it was ludicrous. It had to be all written by hand. That's ridiculous. There were monks, (laughs) and particularly religious writing, because all art and literature was controlled by religion, Mm -hmm. and particularly the Catholic Church in Europe. In fact, only the Catholic Church in Europe up until the point that we're getting to. Mm -hmm. There would be a group of monks whose job it was to write out the books. That's got to be tough. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them. Yeah. But with the printing press, messages are getting out there. 
and particularly the criticism of the Catholic Church. So Martin Luther, mm-hmm. the original Martin the, Luther. The OG. The OG Martin Luther. And the Protestant Reformation. Uh-huh. This challenge towards Catholicism. Do you know why it's called Protestant? Uh, protest. Protest, yeah. Mm. Protestants. Yes. So they're protesting against the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church responds, it, responds with an index of forbidden books. So it bans a load of books. Mm. Heretical works, so works that go against the religious doctrines, are condemned. So people like Galileo, condemned. Martin Luther, condemned. Nietzsche, later on, condemned. Mm -hmm. So these people that go against the ideas of religion. What did Galileo do? All I know of Galileo is he had that weird triangle sextant thing that he looked through. Didn't he drop the balls from the top of the... That was Newton. No, from the Tower of Pisa, he dropped the two balls... And he proved that they landed the same time. objects of the same density, I want to say, <laughs> and the same shape. Yeah. No. It's about wind resistance, isn't it? No, it's about gravity, isn't it? It's... Yes, but wind, wind, gravity applies equally to all objects, and it's wind resistance that slows them down. Yeah, but Newton discovered gravity. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. Well, Newton codified the laws of physics... Yeah. You're speaking from authority okay. here. Okay, well, I'm just going to have to look at what Galileo did then. Oh, yeah. good. So I'm sure it's Newton that dropped the thing. Maybe it was No, Galileo. no, Galileo definitely dropped the thing, 100%. Maybe it's saying about... Whip- Galileo, Galileo studied the speed and velocity, gravity and free fall. Galileo, blah, 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 blah. If I just search Galileo two balls. <laughs> Lean Tower of Pisa experiment. This is it. The time of their de- so he went to the top of the Tower of Pisa, dropped two masses to demonstrate that the time of their descent was independent of their mass. So it's independent of how much they weighed. Oh, wasn't it? So if you had two balls, one ball of feathers mm. and one ball of rock, yeah, they would both fall at the same speed. Wouldn't they? Yeah. A ball of feathers and a ball of rock. Yeah. Of the same density. Of the same density, yeah. yeah. Okay. Not the same weight. No. The same so density. They'd have, like, so there's that, no wind resistance. feathers would have to be like Really packed tightly in. packed. Because yeah. if the air got into them, it would slow it down massively. Yeah. Which is why uh, things like Formula One cars are so concerned with wind resistance. And also, that's why God doesn't exist. <laughs> exactly. Somehow. <laughs> but though, even those kinds of experiments question the existence of God. Mm. These, this index of forbidden books, this list... The final list was sent out. When do you think the final list of the Catholic Church banning books was sent out? 1600. 1948. Oh, bloody hell. The practice entirely, so they they kept doing it. They kept having banned lists up until 1966. Wow. In England, well, good censorship or bad censorship? Obviously bad censorship. Why? It's the same reasons. You've got to have... But in this sense, it's also like Socrates being annoying in many ways. It's being annoying. And some of the things he said might not be true. They're just to make you think. Mm. Whereas these scientific advances are, to an extent that we can call anything true, mm-hmm. yet they are being suppressed. Yeah. So truth in this case is being suppressed. Yeah, that's very bad censorship. I agree. Yeah. Perhaps now that you've said that for even more obvious reasons. And... Well, actually, I don't know. Should truth... Is truth more important than thinking? All right, Socrates. Oh, well, I. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... Well, truth can only be arrived at through four. Yeah, yeah. As Mill is going to argue. 
In England, there was also a licensing of the Press Act in 1662 mm-hmm. by Charles II, who came in just after the period of the Protectorate. Yeah. Come in under the Protectorate of Cromwell and his very short-lived Protectorate of his son, the restoration of the monarchy. So mm-hmm. they see that very important that publications need to be controlled yeah. to prevent a repeat of an English civil war. Mm-hmm. The licensing of the Press Act basically means that all publications have to be registered with the government. So you can't just put out books and stuff like that that are potentially going to be dangerous to the interests. And the king's representatives have the power to search houses and shops to confiscate books that they see as dangerous. This law also establishes copyright claims, which in itself is a kind of censorship. Yeah. Because it's saying, if you wrote this book, because what would happen before this, let's say you write an incredible book. So one of the big proponents of copyright claims, a bit later, obviously, was um, William Defoe, who wrote Robinson Crusoe. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he, he was essentially saying, it's not fair that I write Robinson Crusoe, and then some idiot over there just reproduces the whole book and sells it to make money for themselves. Mm. It should be my property. Mm. So they do things like Grant, where well, you can have property for it for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Mm. Which is why today, some books from 100 years ago, their copyright has run out. So they are in the public domain and you can get them for free. Oh, right. Oh, it's a time limit on copyright. Yeah. Oh, wow. So if you go on to your Kindle. Yeah, go on. If you go on your Kindle yeah. and you go through all your books, mm-hmm. you will see that some books from like 100... So, for example, Oscar Wilde's work. Yeah. That, you can get it for free. Let's say I was going to crack open into the uh, Iliad. The Iliad. Yeah. Get that for free. Oh, the only cost incurred, like you can't go into Waterstones and pick up the Iliad for free because it still costs the publisher's money to print it. Yeah. But any publisher can print it mm. oh, right. at any cost that they wish to. And mm. the reason that an, you might get a free audiobook, but the reason the audiobook costs money is because someone has to read it. But the, the concept of intellectual property is established and calcified. <laughs> and ossified. At this time. <laughs> Burning books, destroying books, quelling free speech in this sense, you agree is wrong yes so we've gone from deaf for saying things that you shouldn't Mm -hmm. or saying things that go against the status quo censorship of works that go against the status quo now i'm gonna go up a gear i was gonna say because this isn't very controversial this far we're gonna go up a gear yeah and we're gonna use john Stuart mill who we mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. to go up this gear he wrote a book called on liberty which was about what do you think that was about uh Detention. Detention, yeah. <laughs> he made two assertions. The first is that freedom of expression is a good thing. So being able to say and do within reason what you want is good politically, individually and socially. Mm-hmm. His second key bit, and this is talking about the limits to it, he says, the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilised community against his will is to prevent harm to others. Mm-hmm. So the only way that you can stop someone's free expression is if it prevents harm to others. Mm-hmm. We're going to go through that in more detail in a moment, but what I'm going to do... Can't make me wear a mask. Good, good point. <laughs> Can't wait, make me wear a mask. And you can apply the harm principle to that Yeah. because will it cause harm to others if you don't wear a mask? And if mm. it does, then you can be mandated to wear a mask. Okay. He writes... What's supposed to run a gunshot? well that's I think Mill mentions that (laughs) Mill does 
a chapter at the end of this book called Applications, where he essentially applies this to real life scenarios and says what he thinks. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the situation and I want you to say what you would do or what you think is the right thing to do. So one of the situations he outlines is there's a dangerous bridge, a very unstable bridge. Uh And there's a guy who wants to cross it. Uh What should the government do? What should the power do? A little sign saying very unstable bridge. Should you stop him from crossing the bridge? Nope. You are in exact line with Mill. Yeah. Mill argues that a person should be warned not to cross the bridge with a sign, mm-hmm. but should not be forcibly prevented from crossing it. Yeah. Why? Why shouldn't you stop? Because he's gonna, he might die if he tries to cross this unstable bridge. Uh, because it only hurts him. It yeah. only affects him. Well, and his direct family. And this is where, that's where it gets complicated. We're yeah. going to get to that in a second. And all his mates. That's the unstable bridge. We might not have it next. Hmm. Second scenario. What about selling poison? Should you be, be allowed to sell and buy poison? And if so, yeah. how? It's not on the Mitchell Webb's sketch where it's like, do you sell poison? <laughs> Could it kill a person? Could it kill this person? <laughs> um, well, imagine that situation. Can you sell poison? What's poison for? Well, again, do you have the right to ask that question? I suppose not. Uh, yeah, you can sell poison. To anyone? No. Oh, why not? You can sell... Because poison is dangerous for other people. So how do you stop dangerous people buying poison? You... How do you stop dangerous people Let me give you two scenarios. One, person comes in. Um, I'd like to buy some poison. Alright. Well, how old are you? How old am I? I'm 28. Six. I'll show you some ID. Show the ID you are. Okay, so you're, we're already putting up steps here. Yeah, yeah. Put up barriers. What then do you ask? Um. What then do you ask for the poison? Do you ask me? Do you ask me what I'm going to use it for? No. No. I can't. So I'm just going to take that poison. Now, you didn't know this, <laughs> but I'm buying that poison to poison my. I'm using that poison to poison Socrates. <laughs> well, then, in that case, I don't need this any is what idea. Mill, this is what Mill said, and I think you're circling around this idea anyway. Mm. He says there should be no banning of poison. You can't ban poison. No. But there should be regulations, such as taking down the name and address of the purchaser. Yes, that's very clever. So you register, and it's a bit like how, and this works perfectly, in America with guns. Mm. It works perfectly. What they do, they go and buy the gun, and then you take their name and they have to be licensed and registered. Yeah. That's the idea for Mill. But you can't go into the shop. You can't go into the shop. With a mask. With a mask. No, that's an infringement. Of yeah, it's an infringement. Next one. Someone writes an article about the outrageous price of corn. <laughs> <laughs> go on. Hard and, hitting. And in that article they say um, the big bosses are exploiting the labourers. Bit socialist, bit Marxist. Mm-hmm. And the price of corn is outrageous. What do you do with that? Should that be censored? No. You what? should read it mm-hmm. and you should fact check it. Yeah. And if the slightest thing is wrong with it, you come up with a bigger article going yes. like fraud. Okay. So that almost is in line with the Socrates and the Catholic Church stuff that you shouldn't just ban a book. You should no. try and learn from it. Yeah. How about this one? Someone at a protest against corn dealers. 
holding a placard that says, kill all corn dealers. Now. Um, I suppose you can't do anything, really. Because that, that guy, he's obviously quite a horrible person. But you have to, if I'm, I'm in the sort of role of in charge of government. Mm-hmm. I have to hope that the people that I am technically gover- governing are smart enough and are like a sort of, are discerning enough to go, okay, that's too far. But okay, let, let's change the scenario because he also talks about this. Let's say it's not a placard. Mm. Let's say he's giving a speech to a group of protesters against the outrageous price of corn. <laughs> What's a corn thing? What are about corn? I don't know, he talks about corn quite a lot. <laughs> and so the guy, this, spe- this guy is giving a speech and he says, what we must do right now, all of us, is march over to the corn dealer's house, burn it down and kill him. Okay. Is that allowed? Under your state? He can say it, but I assume at the rally there's guards... So if they actually start the march, it would be sort of like... But, so let's say uh, he says it. Yeah. All the people rush in and kill the corn dealer. He stays at the, the lectern. He doesn't kill the corn dealer. Yeah. In your state, he's not responsible. He, yeah, he is. Why? He's an accessory. No, he's not. He just said it. I don't know what an accessory means, but it sounds like that's what he'd be. But if you're an accessory to something, then you are responsible. You're an accessory to the murder. Yeah, if you put your ideas out there, you have to stand by them. I I just shoot them all. (laughs) (laughs) Mill argues that incitement is a kind of action. Yes. He says that inciting harm Mm. is committing harm. That is a limit on your free speech. You should not be able to incite Mm. other people to do harm. Yeah, but incitement's a weird word. Why? Because you can incite... Things aren't like... If I tell you to do something, you probably won't do it. But if I talk about something and you agree with it, I, that's just like passive incitement. But if your, I think his argument is, if your purpose was to cause harm, uh, then that is not acceptable. Yeah. So in the specific example where it's a guy giving a huge speech saying, mm. let's kill the corn dealer. He says that's not acceptable and they should be arrested and held accountable for that. Yes. That is a limit to your free speech. That's fair. That's fair. Penultimate one, a person who becomes violent when drunk. Now, let's break this into two parts. First part, should people be allowed to get as drunk as they want under Mill's system? Yes. Why? Because uh, it's their choice. Their choice, and it doesn't harm others necessarily. No, ne- not necessarily, oh. unless through that they harm others. So when they get violent when drunk? Yeah. Well, if they get violent when drunk, they'd be arrested. <laughs> but not because they're drunk, because they're violent. But they don't have the right to... Like, he argues, essentially, that they could then be compelled not to drink. What do you mean? Like, they're banned from drinking. Because every time they drink, they get violent. No, no, it can't be banned from drinking. So you disagree with Mill? Yeah. How dare you? What do you mean, how dare I <laughs> disagree with Mill? Well, he's arguing that if this stimulus causes this response every time, mm-hmm. you should be not be able to have that stimulus. The same way that... If every time you go to a football game, you beat up a load of people, yeah. then is it right to ban you from going to football games? Uh, yeah. But that's different. Mm. Bit of an infringement on freedom of expression there. But that, that's not freedom of expression. Mm. I think... Sounds like freedom of expression to me. I think... He's harming other people, I suppose. He is harming other people. But can you... S- Mill's argument is essentially some of your liberties need to be taken away... 
if you keep causing harm to other people. But let's, I think it's like, if you if you cause harm once, like, all right, you stay in prison for a day, do it again, all right, it's a week, mm. do it again. Yeah, that, I think it, that's it's not the It's not the drinking. Like, don't take away the drinking, just increase the sentence for the violence. Okay. Because surely you'll learn from Well, we know how much you want to stop, not want to stop people drinking. Oh, that's true. I'm a big advocate of... Our last example we're going to come to in a second. Mill's arguments for allowing this massive range of freedom of speech. Because lots of people would think, for example, that bridge example. Mm. Just stop the guy crossing the bridge. I don't want him to hurt himself. The idea that the state should intervene to stop people making bad decisions. Molly, Molly Cotton state. He makes quite a few arguments for that. One is that eccentricity is a good thing. Having lots of mavericks and weirdos is good. It yep. drives society. The three arguments for free speech are the first, let's pretend the opinion is right of that maverick, of that weirdo. Mm -hmm. Let's say Galileo expressed an opinion that objects of equal mass fall at whatever we decided was Galileo said. Let's say they're right about that. If we censor that expression, so the Catholic Church censors that expression and the expression is true, then people are denied the opportunity to exchange truth for error. Mm -hmm. So to refuse to hear an opinion because they are sh- sure that it is false, as the Catholic Church were, mm-hmm. is to assume that their certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty. And all silencing of a discussion is an assumption of infallibility. I am infallible. Mm-hmm. And he said that's very dangerous. You can't learn anything. You can't learn anything if you think that you are ultimately always right. Yeah. You have to be willing to hear an opinion because that opinion may be correct. Yeah. The second, and if it isn't, it refines your own. And that's the second. Ah. If the opinion is false, and if we censor all expressions of things that are false, so, for example, let's say mm, flat earth. Mm-hmm. Let's say the flat earth discussion. If we censor that discussion, if we censor people saying the earth is flat, which is patently untrue based on all science. Excuse me. <laughs> Go on. We'll agree to disagree with that. <laughs> Yeah. If you say that again, I'm going to chuck you over the edge of the earth. (laughs) Well, flat earth is known all around the globe. (laughs) If we censor those kinds of opinions, then our own beliefs are what he calls dead dogmas. They're not living truths. Mm. And we don't have a clear and lively understanding of the truth. So with the flat earth stuff, when the first person said to me, I think it was a student, said, you know, the earth's flat. And I was like, what on earth are you you talking about? about? They, they say some things. They do say some interesting things, the flat earthers, and you have to go and research them. Yeah. And, they, and they go, well, NASA's a conspiracy. And you search in and you go, well, it's not a conspiracy. You can't, no, it's not. But in doing that, you're having a really lively understanding of your argument. Mm. You say, like, that's ridiculous. I'm, I'm, what the hell are you... Then you go home. And I might just look it up. Yeah, look just, it up. Just to be sure. But because... Of, and it's the same with something like religion. I'm not religious. Neither are you. Neither am I. But... If we never engage with people who are religious, we don't really understand our own argument very well. That's true. And by engaging with people who are very strongly religious, even if we believe their opinions to be false, our argument actually stays alive and means something. Yeah. It's not a dead dogma. And again, it gets refined. Because people come up with points and you have to think about counterpoints. It's not a dead dogma barking up the wrong tree of conversation. <laughs> I saw your face light up when you said the His thought. third argument. So we've had, if the opinion is right, if the opinion is wrong. Yeah. What do you think his third argument is going to be? Uh, if opinion is right, if opinion is wrong, 
Yes. How often are opinions 100% right or 100% wrong? Very rarely. What's the majority of the opinions? Uh, sort of middle... Middle ground. Yeah. So he argues that the third argument for free speech is that is essentially most opinions are partly true, partly false. Okay. In some way. Mm. And his central argument that we learn through the marketplace of ideas, <laughs> as he calls it, <laughs> he, he is pessimistic about that. He says that yeah. finding truth through the marketplace of ideas is fraught with disaster. If you just let everyone say something, he says there is a tendency of all opinions to become sectarian. So, like, right and wrong. 100% right, 100% wrong. You're yeah. either with us or against us. Yeah. And because of that, it's often heightened, heightened and exacerbated mm. by that sectarianism. You, you said it in a um, little callback, the moral panics one. Mm. The government creates a class of people and they go like... And the people that know they were their class will go like, yeah, I'm that. Like yeah. the mods and the rockers. So they become so that it, sort of thing. It calcifies. It calcifies and ossifies. Yeah. But, and then everyone against it goes like, no, you're definitely wrong. Yeah. He, his response is that essentially there is always hope when people are forced to listen to both sides or allowed to listen to both sides. Yeah. And through this almost dialectic process that... You know, there's a, a thesis, an antithesis, and mm. through those two things combining, we get a synthesis, a middle ground. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. We do get, even though it's dangerous, even though you do get demagogues and um, partisanship. And, I'm saying a lot <laughs> of words hell, here. Come I'm on. saying a lot of words. <laughs> and two sides arguing against each other. Essentially, freedom of speech, to paraphrase Churchill, mm. is the worst system apart from all the others. Yeah. So it's the lesser of all the other reasons. Lesser of all the other, yeah. Mills, or it's not really Mills' example, but this is one I want to talk to because we're up in the controversy stakes here. Yeah. Pornography. Oh. Now, pornography, unsurprisingly, is not mentioned explicitly <laughs> Good. Well, in Mills on Liberty. Mm-hmm. But lots of people have tried to apply Mill to the issue of pornography and whether Mill would allow it to happen. Yeah. Based on what I've just told you about Mill, mm. what do you think he might argue about pornography? And why is it a, a prickly issue? <laughs> <laughs> um, he would probably uh, say that it's okay to have it, but mm-hmm. people should be educated in it. Okay. Yeah. So... Because I've, I've recently had this discussion with my friends. Glad you finished that. I recently... Yeah, I know. Had this discussion, discussion. with my friends. Yeah. And... Um, Aficionados. Aficionados. Experts in yeah. the... In These the are field. the 50 IQs. Right? <laughs> <laughs> These are the ones above. And um, I think the main issue is, it's not like the odd person doing it. It's when you get a big company doing it. Mm-hmm. And they get money from these videos. And it's not perhaps... The ones that some people are watching, but the ones that others are, that are harmful to people, like, bad. And like, Is there an argument that it is causing harm? Yes. Direct harm? No. Because Mill only wants to legislate for direct harm. Direct harm? Depends. So Richard Vernon yeah. wrote about this in oh. Ethics magazine. In Ethics magazine. The 1996 April edition. <laughs> Boom. Big fan of that one. He argued that the ideas put forward by Mill do permit and even require the censorship of violent and degrading pornography. So he thinks that Mill's harm principle essentially 
necessitates that you um, censor some pornography. Mm-hmm. He says, while Mill advocates freedom of opinion and discussion, he nowhere in the book does he actually defend freedom of expression, which is an interesting distinction. So a comparison that Mill actually does make in his book is he talks about trade and competitive exams. So let's take the latter. If you want to go to Oxford... Brooks. Well, let's say just regular <laughs> Oxford. Yeah. Because I don't think it works the Brooks, because I don't think Brooks have a competitive exam that you need to pass in order to get into them. They do not. Unless that test is just writing your name <laughs> for the application. Yeah. And, tick- and putting a paw print on the <laughs> signature. O- Oxford and Cambridge both have entrance exams, mm-hmm. as do as it does for lots of things like medical schools. Let's take medical school, medical schools because that's actually a better example. Yeah. In order to get into medical school, you need to pass this exam. In passing the exam, you also need to do better than other people. So by by taking this exam, you are injuring the interests of other people. Dog eat dog. It's dog eat dog because if there's a thousand applicants and only. 20 get in mm-hmm. by you taking that place you get in and someone else doesn't yeah mill says that while that does cause a direct harm to someone else mm-hmm. and while it's true that removing that would not cause that harm you need to think about the balance and gains of losses of taking that action so can you demonstrate that there's a strong public interest in awarding places in medical school to candidates other than those who got the highest score Probably not, can Probably you? Not, no. You want to make sure that you get the best of the best, even if that's a flawed in system. In medical school. For the, with the pornography issue, we have to remember that Mill is a utilitarian. Do you know what a utilitarian is? Sort of. It's like a pragmatist, isn't it? Right. Essentially, utilitarians believe in the greatest good for the greatest number. Yeah, yeah. Founded on the ideas of Jeremy Bentham, who was like Mill's idol, this idea that Government should be geared to make the majority of people feel good as much as possible mm. or do the greatest good for them. Mm-hmm. So when it at comes, the expense of perhaps a minority. That... Again, ex- at the, in its purest form, perhaps at the expense of a minority. But that's, Mill would argue that that's not doing a good because, for example, if the majority of Europe was Catholic, mm. then the greatest good for the greatest number could be argued to be suppressing all anti-Catholic books oh, yeah. and thoughts yeah. now that stands up on the greatest good for the greatest number but Mill says that's not the greatest good well it's not it's not good is it exactly it's yeah. not good because we're not allowing for those things that we said mm. you changing your beliefs and learning a better truth you invigorating your dead dogmas or you trying to synthesise between different opinions mm. so you actually lose out by doing that I really want I missed it but I really want to say it's not enough to exceed, succeed all others must fail yeah. During the end, I'll really try and edit that back in. Yeah, all, all, it's not enough to succeed. All others must fail. Edit that in. Edit that in. Yeah. When it comes to pornography, then yeah. it, we have to look at Mill's conception of what rights are. A right is something that society should defend you in the possession of. What kind of rights do we talk about in the modern day? Uh, the right to bear arms. Right. Yeah. The right to bear arms. <laughs> the right to free speech. The yeah. right to a fair trial. Yeah. All of these things. Although Mill, as a utilitarian, and Jeremy Bentham famously said, rights are nonsense on stilts because they're just made up. All rights are made up and they're not permanent. Mm -hmm. You know, one day you have the right to have a slave. That's true. Now, fortunately, you don't. One day you have the right to education. 
Yeah, it, so they do change. They are nonsense on stilts. So he says rights is based on the greatest good for the greatest number. Mm-hmm. So right to free speech is a right because it causes the greatest good to the greatest number. Yep. The question when it comes to something like pornography is, is watching pornography a right? Because if it's not, then it clearly impinges on or causes harm to some people. I suppose yes. Yes, it is. Why? Uh, How does that improve the general utility or the general happiness of society? Would society be better with or without pornography? Probably with. Why? Without. <laughs> without. <laughs> without. Um, I don't know. It's a tricky question. Like, I, think I, the, I think the issue is with pornography is it's so underground. Mm-hmm sort of taboo and not spoken about it's like you don't know who watches it you don't know I don't think that's necessarily true it's the I most mean, watched thing yeah. on the internet yeah I know but you you don't go around talking about it well some men and boys do yeah but they talk about it to their respective groups you wouldn't and through that they only um, get ingrained into their own thoughts think about it this way and I think this is important for Mill which is the issue of artistic merit it's been argued that the defining aim of pornography is not artistic merit. It's to arouse its audience yeah. sexually. Sexually. So therefore, it doesn't have the same protections that art... Like Mill says, I defend your right to an opinion and mm. debate, but not to express yourself however you want to express yourself. He yeah. famously says, you're not allowed to go out into the public square naked. Yeah. Because that's indecent. Mm-hmm. So you could argue that Mill would ban pornography on that ground. That makes sense. But then what counts for pornography? What about an erotic film? Yeah, or art that's... Yeah. I think it's about the purpose. The Mona Lisa. Is the purpose purely or, <laughs> or predominantly to sexually arouse? Mm. Or is it for artistic merit? So you could argue that if a pornographer says, no, I'm not trying to arouse anyone, I'm just trying to... It's just art. It's just art. Um, like French directors, for example. Yeah, bloody... <laughs> On to our last one then. So we've done the banning of books and speech, which we both agreed, stupid, not yeah. necessary. We got to some more specific examples, specifically given by Mill in his applications, and some of them were more contentious than others, particularly pornography, which seems to be a prickly <laughs> issue. Hot topic. A hot topic, a thorny issue, especially <laughs> when it involves fawns. Yes, that's a bad one. S&M. <laughs> the final one that we're going to talk about today is, in essence, hate speech. Holocaust denial. Is that an area that deserves to be protected? (coughs) Mm. First of all, let's lay out why there is Holocaust denial. As we know, the Holocaust did happen. There's extensive evidence and... Or, well, extensive evidence... Careful. That we're going to come to why it's so prevalent, but we, we know six million people died... In horrific ways. Horrific German death camps, yeah. and many historians have written about it and provided the most telling evidence, which is the testimony of people who actually lived through it. Yeah. But why, then, can people deny the Holocaust? How is it possible for someone in their right mind to deny it? Is it through... The only way I can think of it is through like the definition of what a Holocaust is, or what it was. No, no, they... they many Holocaust deniers say... They range from it didn't happen at all okay, to okay. 
It happened, but there wasn't. It was about. It was like six hundred. Five million nine thousand nine hundred. No, 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 like way, like you know, it was six. It was really small. Yeah. To it happened, but Hitler didn't know about it. And these are all the stages, and the reason for it. Well, saying Hitler, good guy, done, done wrong. Yeah, Hitler. It, Hitler was furious <laughs> when he found out that the Holocaust happened. Okay. The reason this is prevalent is because from the beginning of the war. The Nazis themselves did everything they could to stop people knowing that it was happening. Because mm-hmm. they knew that if anyone... Like, at the beginning of the war, America weren't involved. Yeah. If they'd have known, the theory is... There's also an argument that lots of people did actually know, but they mm-hmm. still did trade with the Nazis anyway. If they'd have known, public opinion would immediately say, we need to get involved here because this is a terrible, horrible thing that's going yeah. on. So, from the very beginning... They were trying to keep people in the dark about what was happening. Mm-hmm. So the head of the German police in the SS, Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, yep. he said, addressing high-ranking officers, he says, most of you here know what it means when 100 corpses lie next to each other, when 500 lay there. This is an honour roll in our history, which has never been and never will be put in writing. So they never wanted anyone to know about it. They three-pronged thing. First, they limited the written record of the crime to a minimum. So there's no real written records of like, this is what Auschwitz is for and this is what Birkenau is for. Okay. That was all either destroyed or never written. Yeah. Second, they falsified the record to the degree that technical and organisations made its existence necessary. So they falsified it, they changed it, they made it look like it didn't happen. And third, near the end of the war, they destroyed the most incriminating parts of the record once it has sold their purpose. So once they, you know, you've got to keep records of the people in the death camps in order to administer them, yep. but they burnt it near the end of the war and as soon as it had sold, okay. sold its purpose. So lots of Holocaust denial point to the lack of concrete evidence because there never would be concrete evidence because no. it was all destroyed by the Nazis. Except for... The concrete evidence. Uh, yeah. We'll get to that. The law... Where the law stands on this, and I'm going to ask your opinion on this in a moment. 16 European countries and Israel have laws against Holocaust denial. So you legally cannot deny the Holocaust. To say it would be a crime in and of itself. Okay. What do you think of that? I wouldn't agree with that. I think you should... Oh, that's right. No. So you think should no, to, um... no. I think that you sh- in the same way that you know the flat Earth people are wrong. Mm. This is just a horrible extreme of it. Like you, you're allowed, to, Let me give allowed you a... to say it, but you should also be argued. Let me give you a couple of examples, and I'm going to put you in a slightly better light rather than sounding Good. like. Thank a... you. So there's a, a, something called the Farrison affair or the Forison affair. It's French. Mm-hmm. where a French professor of literature in between 1978 and 1979 published two letters cla- claiming that the gas chambers used by the Nazis basically weren't really used or okay, they didn't exist. Yeah. As a result of a TV interview, he was found guilty of defamation and incitement to racial hatred and given a three-month prison term and a 3,200 uh, franc fine. Mm. Well, actually, no, it's 21,000 francs. It was a frank and decisive fine. <laughs> 21,000 francs, which is 3,200 euros. Okay, wow. So quite a lot. Yeah. Noam Chomsky, well-known linguist, but also political 
left winger. American. American. Always thought he was Russian. No. American, but a real sort of left wing. Mm. He's an anarcho syndicalist, so he's essentially. Is he now? He's essentially an anarchist, like yeah. real left wing. He wrote a piece actually defending this guy, defending the Holocaust denier. Not for what he said, but he wanted truth and error to confront each other on equal terms. He said, and he... Playing devil's advocate. Not so much playing devil's advocate, but invoking that idea of Voltaire, which is, I I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to your death the right to say it. Mm -hmm. That it's more damaging to silence the opinion than it is to address the opinion. And like Mill says replace falsity for fact. You've just compared me to Chomsky and Voltaire. Yeah. This is good. The most famous example, especially in, on these shores, <laughs> is David Irving. And there's a film about this called Denial, where there was a court case, Irving versus Penguin Books Limited, mm. and Deborah Lipstadt. David Irving, prolific writer, written many books on World War II, Third Reich. And he was seen as actually being quite a good historian in terms of he dug up lots of interesting details and facts. But as it progressed, a common theme started to emerge, which was any evil done by the Third Reich was equaled, if not surpassed, by the evils committed by the Allies. So he focused a lot on things like the Dresden bombings, which was obviously an awful war crime. But it was always like an apologist approach to Nazi Germany. Just Nazi? Or was it like Nagasaki and Hiroshima? What do you mean? Um, that was pretty bad. Yeah, they're, they're the kind of things he talks about. But he's, yeah. he's, he's an apologist for the Nazis because he's almost saying, well, the Allies were even worse. Okay. Yeah. Until 1988, David Irving did admit that the Holocaust had occurred, though he tended to minimise its impact. But in 1988, he was like full-out Holocaust denier. Oh, wow. He said he's been converted by the science of the Lucha report, which found that there had been no poison gas chambers in the Auschwitz camp. The Lucha report was later debunked as being total nonsense. Okay. After 1988, when his older books were reprinted, he edited out all mention of the Holocaust, and he travelled around the world speaking to neo-Nazis and others, and he would say things like... Um, more women died on the backseat of Edward Kennedy's car than ever died in a gas chamber at Auschwitz. Wow. So some really... Yeah, that's, that's telling. Provocative... Seems to have gone off the rails a bit there. In 1993, Deborah Lipstadt, historian, a sort of Holocaust expert, mm-hmm. wrote a book called Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory, to expose these kinds of lies and to do exactly what we've said, address falsity with facts Mm -hmm. and in the book she discusses David Irving specifically who she says is a dangerous spokesman for Holocaust denier and basically calls him an Mm anti-Semite Irving sues Lipstadt for defamation she's saying he's saying she's going against my character as a historian okay they go to court Irving represents himself (laughs) never a good sign never represent yourself And it essentially becomes a trial on the Holocaust, a trial on whether it actually happened. Mm. And eventually, of course, Lipstadt presents the facts and the judge finds that Irving had, for his own ideological reasons, persistently and deliberately misrepresented and manipulated historical evidence. And essentially they say that Irving is an active Holocaust denier 
that he is an anti-Semite and a racist, and that he associates with right-wing extremists who promote neo-Nazis. So, where do you now stand on something like Holocaust denial? Is that something that should be censored? Uh, I stand with my original point. Which was? Which was, no, it, the opinion shouldn't be censored, but it should be argued against. What about the claim that, as Mill argued with the the guy rallying the corn dealers to kill the guy in charge of the corn, mm-hmm. what about the claim that Holocaust denial is incitement or hate speech? For what? So it perpetuates anti-Semitism. Yes, it does. So is that? But then you have to ask: Should hate speech be well uh, censored? Holocaust denial is a subsection of hate speech. You yeah. Could, well, is it? Is it hate speech? It depends on how you look at it. If you're looking at it academically, then no. But how can you look at the Holocaust academically and conclude that it didn't happen? As, you, c- as you could not have all the facts. True, but then you haven't looked at it academically. You have. You haven't. You have. But you, as... you look. You looked at so- Socrates academically. Do you have all the facts on him? Yes. <laughs> but as Judge Gray in the Irving versus Lipstadt case, he concluded that the reason that Irving had these views is because he is anti-Semitic and racist. That is the only way you can have those views. So can we allow and tolerate anti-Semitic and racist speech? Cheers, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> and I think on that note of confusion, we see how censorship is a complicated issue. Mm. In the sense that on those basic levels, we, we agree immediately that you shouldn't be sentenced to death for expressing an opinion contrary to that of the status quo, for questioning the status quo, mm-hmm. as Socrates did. We said that you shouldn't be... Books shouldn't be banned and burnt simply for criticising status quo no <clears throat> but when we get to the more controversial issues pornography and holocaust denial and hate well, when when we believe that we're in the right and people are contradicting you to mm. us it's different isn't it but it's like i can disagree with you but you can't disagree with me but there's also that question that as mill says the harm principle the things that we do through ourselves can't be regulated because they only affect ourselves. Mm-hmm. So things like taking drugs, that only affects ourselves, according to Mill. Expressing opinions that are silly or stupid, that only affects ourselves because people will just go, well, he's an idiot. And... But does he miss the fact that no words and opinions can ever only uh, affect ourselves? Doesn't it? Does it not perpetuate ideas that themselves cause harm to others what like let's say take the example of black lives matter yeah if someone says i don't like black lives matter Mm -hmm. i'm not going to support black lives matter that would be defended under the harm principle because you're not harming anyone directly you're just expressing a dislike for the black lives matter protest yeah but some people would argue that by expressing that opinion you are perpetuating you're continuing and you're strengthening a culture and a system that does do direct harm to other people but i think that's too simple isn't it because you could say you don't like the movement but in the same way that people were suffragists and suffragettes Mm -hmm. after the same thing but you didn't do it in the same way 
So I think it's too, like, it's too black and white. But my point is that for Mill, Mill argues that the only way that you can restrict pers- people's free speech is if they cause direct harm to others. Yeah. But doesn't everything cause direct harm to... Well, and perhaps not direct... Isn't indirect harm sometimes just as bad as direct harm? Yes. So then shouldn't we censor loads of stuff? Everything. Yeah. No. I think you have to be discerning. I don't, should, you, should you censor anything? Well, that's a, well, you should censor things that cause direct harm. Should you? Well, if you want to stop direct harm, yeah. Yeah. Should we stop direct harm? <laughs> no. And I think, again, uh, uh, maybe Mill should have the final word on that, which is that, yes, it's not perfect, but it's better than anything else. Yeah, it's better else. than everything else. Yeah. And the whole point is that freedom of speech and positions on freedom of speech and censorship, it's not like, well, this is the right position because mm. that totally goes against freedom <laughs> of speech and censorship anyway. Yeah. It's the point that the only way that we can arrive at the the best for our time is through discussion and debate. Is there anyone arguing against freedom of speech? Yeah. How? Well, so f- for example, someone like Socrates. Yeah. Socrates. No, but I mean nowadays. Yeah, but... It, it, there's loads of people arguing against freedom of speech. That's ridiculous, because they, they wouldn't be able to argue it unless they had it. But the point, yeah, but the point is that they are aspiring to something more than freedom of speech. So if you look at socialists and Marxists, traditionally, Marx would argue that freedom of speech is basically a bourgeois concept in the sense that it's just a liberal idea that slows down the revolution. Because mm. what Marx is concerned with is not what we say... It's how our society is governed. Yeah. He's more concerned with the economic system and how that will affect us. And he says, once you change the economic system, then our speech will actually mean something. In the current system, just having the right to say something is rubbish. It doesn't mean anything. Another... Yeah, but op- did he, what if he didn't have the right to say that? No one would know about it. Well, you've obviously got to it's have a, the right It's all to say steps, it. isn't it? It's a step in the right direction. But can you... The classic one is, can you tolerate someone who doesn't want freedom of speech? Can you allow someone who doesn't want freedom of speech to have freedom of speech? Yes. For example, the Nazi regime wouldn't want freedom of speech. No. The Soviet Union doesn't want freedom of speech. No. People's Republic of China doesn't have freedom of speech. They're the sort of government. <laughs> <laughs> but these are all examples. Uh, the Chinese example was one in the modern day of a country that does not have freedom of speech. Yeah. Because they would argue... It's not best for the collective for people to have freedom of speech. We are acting in your interests. But you can only govern your society, really, or in your sphere. So if another society doesn't have freedom of speech, you can't, that, you can't affect that. With that you can, the only way you can affect that is by talking to the people who govern it. What about the problem... Or to the, you can't talk to the people that are being governed. This was a problem laid out by Socrates, and Mill actually touched on it as well. Socrates didn't like democracy. He said that democracy is like a ship of fools. So imagine you're on a boat Mm. or a ship and you're heading into a storm. Who do you want to lead that ship? Captain. A captain who is knowledgeable in seafaring. Socrates agrees. But he says democracy is essentially the tyranny of the majority. So the majority become a dictator and now a captain might look at that storm and say well what we actually want to do from my years of experience and training is we want to sail into that storm 
because actually, and I don't know yes. if that's true, but some sort of thing that... We'll reach the eye of the storm. We'll reach the eye of the storm quicker, and if we sail away from it, it'll just catch up with us and we'll be facing the wrong way or something like that. Something like that. The people who aren't educated in that will go, no, we want to sail away from the storm. The storm is bad and we need to get away from there. And what happens... Not is, doing any particular accent there. Is you get, you get demagogues and you get people who are great orators who just convince people to do something that isn't clever or smart. So he argues that you can't trust the people to make the right decision. How can you? How could you trust people to make a decision on something they don't know anything about? informed Yeah. John Stuart Mill, similarly, he, he actually advocated that people who are highly intelligent should get two votes in an election. Mm. And it all becomes tricky and complicated, but... Mill does see in his pessimism over the marketplace of ideas and the tyranny of the majority, which is the idea that just because loads of people think so, it doesn't mean it's true mm. and totally and ultimately true, that it's very difficult to draw a clear line on where freedom of speech should start and end and how much power should be given to people in that content. It's all meaningless, meaningless words, really, isn't it? <laughs> Thinking about it. Right, should we finish with a quick quiz? A quick quiz, come on. Quick quiz, a palate cleanser. <laughs> let's let's just... Got, we, got pretty entrenched. It, yeah, we got pretty deep into the issues yeah. there. Um, so the final... Well, this is going to be the uh, last quiz, isn't final it? Final quick quiz. Final quiz until Christmas special. Until Christmas special, obviously. Mm. Question one. Why was Socrates sentenced to death? Because uh, he was a contrarian. Yeah, in what ways? Well, he constantly questioned the status quo. Can you remember the two things that specifically he did? In the, the, because he, he was always questioning the status quo, but what were the charges levelled against him when he died? Or just before he was sent? No. He was going against the Athenian gods and he was um, poisoning the youth's mind. Oh, I don't remember you saying that at all. It completely slipped right my mind. There. No, I, me- I remember at the time. Oh, these are tough. They- Question two. Which king enforced the licensing of the Press Act in 1662? Charles II. Yeah, well done. Yeah. What principle has John Stuart Mill been credited for that draws the lines for individual action? What principle? Prin- is the something principle that dictates whether you can say or do something. I definitely said this in loose. The liberty principle. <laughs> <laughs> what does he not want... People, what did he say is not acceptable to cause? Oh, um, harm. The harm uh, principle. The, is it the harm, harm principle? principle. Okay. Four, why has Holocaust denial been so prevalent? Because there's no concrete evidence. Well, there is, no, there is concrete there's concrete evidence. evidence there's, um, because uh, during the Nazi regime, mm. they were very sneaky... Weasley, if I can. Yeah, yeah. I think, if I can throw out that controversial. Well, point. let's not get too controversial about the Nazis. <laughs> sneaky and weasley. Yeah. Um, and they destroyed a lot of the evidence of the concentration camps. Yeah. Yeah. Question five. Oh, these are really tough. Oh, I remember why I did this. Mm. Who was the historian who successfully defeated David Irving in court? Oh, it's a woman. Now, the reason I did this, I was going to say... Who was the English Holocaust denier? Yeah. But I thought, let's not remember the Holocaust denier. Yeah, let's so remember the person who... Because yeah. I personally often remember David Irving forgot this other person. Emily 
Pankhurst. <laughs> Deborah Lipstadt. Deborah, Deborah Lipstadt. Lipstadt defeated David Ellie in court. She uh, American. Yes. Yes, okay. She's American. Yeah. Right, that's it. Oh, very good. Final episode of the run. How many did I get right? How many are you going to give me? Yeah, I give myself three. Three, I think. Yeah. Maybe. Not the best. We got Charles the second, that was quite good. Yeah. Uh, what have you been your reflections on... On the, on the saga? Or on the whole this? saga, the podcast saga? Um, I've really enjoyed it. A few laughs, a few tears. A few laughs, a few tears. Few heated debates. <laughs> few frank exchanges of opinions. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. But we all come together at the end. But should we? In a socially distanced hug. In a socially distanced hug. Um, no, it's been really good. Feel like I've learned quite a bit. Yeah, I've definitely learned quite a lot. Yeah. Learned that you can't do a podcast by yourself. Yeah, that that was a, a, a start. <laughs> lesson. Had to drag me in. <laughs> um, Kingdom of the Blind and all that. The Kingdom of the Blind. The wine man is king. Or, or it, how about this? In the kingdom of the blind, the person who says they have one eye is king. Okay, Ollie. Yeah. No, but isn't that true? Yeah, it's true. But what if someone came in with one eye? Then he'd be king. James, ask yourself, is that truthful? <laughs> Do I need to hear it? Is it necessary? <laughs> is it kind? Ugh. Right, let's stop. Let's stop. Right. Thank you, James. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. And I'll see you in the Christmas special. Oh, big one. <laughs> I can't wait. Jingle bells. Jingle bells. I've got to think of the snappy title for it. Um, Christmas cracker. Christmas cracker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll think of a good title later, I'm sure. Well, I've got what's, some bloody good titles. What's this one called? I think I'm going to call it censorship. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> but I'll obviously do F star stuff. Yeah. Right, we've got to say goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.